Good job, Garrett. I was not sure that he was going to do the community prayer, so I was ready. But our normal MC, Claire, who is not here, and like we're realizing that we need more people to more regularly get up and do stuff. We can't trust Claire all the time to do all the things. <laughs> so I'm excited that we had some more folks get a chance to speak. And also, this is a thing that I want everybody to feel um, both welcome to and something that we need to get better about asking everybody to do. We're in this thing together. We're a church together. Um, you want to hear from each other and get to know each other. You don't just want to hear from me and Claire every single week. So um, I'm excited to see us grow in that, and I'm glad that we did it today. Um, good morning, everybody. My name is Kenny. I'm the pastor here at Revolution. It's good to be with you again today. Um, this morning, here's what we're up to. We're pausing before our next sermon series. We just got out of a series. We were talking about the church we are and, and, and who we're for as a church and we're taking a little pause before we go into our next series, which if you're getting ready at home is on the back half of the Gospel of Mark. And what we're doing this week is we're continuing this thing we've done in between series all year where we're looking at different parables of Jesus. And our subject for today, the parable for today is gonna to become obvious in just a bit. But before we get to it, I want us to play a quick, a quick game. I don't think this is gonna go well. I wanna say that right out of the gate. <laughs> but it begins, it begins with a simple story. This past week, ooh, this is why you aren't supposed to be here. Um, <laughs> I lost my wedding ring. Did you know that? We haven't talked about this. Okay, this is awkward. Um, it's, it's my own fault. It's my own fault. Um, for 15 years, uh, my wedding ring never left my finger, but at the beginning of the pandemic, um, I impulsively got the knuckles tattooed, right? So I had to take it off, and then... When I tried to put it on, it, it rubbed them weird and rubbed them the wrong way. And then we were never going anywhere anyways. So just kind of hung out by the, by the nightstand and who knows what child has taken it and what they've done with it. So anyways, point is this week, I couldn't find it. All right, that's the story part. Now for the, the interactive part. What is your reaction? What is, what is your reaction <laughs> to this story? How are you feeling? Eye rolls. <laughs> How about the rest of you? You guys, you are so, uh, you have zero empathy. All right. That's right. All right. You're, there we, good, good. Thank you, Liz. Man, we've been talking about compassion for so long. And like, where is it? Where is it? Um, all right. Now for round two. Now for round two. In this round, uh, we're going to need to do some, some role playing. So here's what I need. I need you all to get yourselves into the headspace of who you were as a teenager. Yeah. I want the snottiest version of you, like the worst. I want the you who has figured out that adults don't know what they're talking about. I want the you who might be the smartest person who's ever lived. That's the you I want. I want you cynical and skeptical and ready to roll your eyes, which some of you are already doing. So... In the scripture I wrote, you don't need to be self-conscious. The teens are all across the street at Starbucks, but they're not. They're here. So this, even that didn't work. All right. Are you there? Have you found it? I'm going to give you a second. Find it. Your worst self. <laughs> now that you're in that headspace, I'm going to tell you some important additional parts of the story that I just told you. This past week, I lost my wedding ring. But to be clear, 
I always knew exactly where it was. Also, it was never apart from me anywhere. And to be clear, I always had control over it. Like it's not like something was keeping me from getting it. In fact, like I still have it. It's like just right here in my pocket. That was, oh, I didn't know that was sweet. You did not feel like that was sweet. All right. Okay. All right. Teens. Remember, snottiest version of you. What is your honest reaction to the story in light of these details? <laughs> yes. Both. I didn't, like, what am I talking about? You didn't lose your ring. What a dumb story. Why did we waste five minutes on this? I had to start with this game because this week we're going to be looking at the lost parables of Luke 15. And I want us, as we get into those parables, to guard ourselves against the temptation to take the easy way out with them. Because this is another one of the parts of the Bible where there is this obvious and this emotionally driven answer to a story and to a riddle the Bible is giving us. But if we stop with the obvious response, we rob ourselves of a chance to wrestle with something deeper. So we need to, this morning to tap into our teenage skeptic selves, even though doing that can be a little scary and, and I'm afraid of you mostly when you're doing it. So to get on the same page here, let's take a quick look at the first of these two parables together. We're going to begin with just a little bit of context. Jesus is once again teaching to a crowd. This time it's specifically a crowd of punks and thieves and no goodniks and ruffians or whatever term you want to use. Scallywags is a good one we don't use enough. Anyways, the text calls them tax collectors and sinners. And the Pharisees, Seeing Jesus teach to this group of people, mutter to themselves that this guy is hanging out with the wrong crowd. You know this. This happens over and over. And Jesus tells them, in light of their, their cynicism towards him, he tells them this story. He says, suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and he goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of, angel, presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Okay, so that first answer that we get on the table that is important here, and it really is deeply true, is this. The point of these parables, right, is that we're never too lost for God. God goes looking for us, finds us, and is happy when we come home. He rejoices when we get back to the flock. We, he rejoices when we get back into the widow's wallet. And this isn't a small thing to learn. It's a good thing to learn. It tells us something incredible about our value to God. But what, my dear teenage friends, do these stories seem to be skipping over? Think back to the wedding ring, right? If God really is God, 
how does anything get lost? In traditional Christian thought, God earns this title of being God because he has these three essential God-like attributes. You might remember them from somewhere. They all start with O, if that's helpful. He's omniscient, right? Which means that he knows everything that's going to happen. And he's omnipresent, which means that he is somehow everywhere all at the same time. And he is also omnipotent, which means that he has the strength to do anything at any given time. So he knows He is, and he can, if that's helpful to remember. But what pokes a bit of a hole in these two stories Jesus just told is that even though the scenario he's describing makes sense for people, it is not a scenario that makes any sense for God. If God is omniscient, how can something be lost to him? If God is omnipresent, how can it ever be apart from him? If God is omnipotent, what does he ever have to worry about? And the flip of that, why would he ever rejoice? We can lose stuff, like a sheep or a coin or a wedding ring, and we can be happy to have that stuff back. But how can God lose anything if he's really God? Now, I don't want to drag this out too far. Some of you are getting anxious. You have anxious faces. And I don't want to worry you, my teenage friends. So here is perhaps a little bit of comfort. As it turns out, as it turns out, this way of thinking about God has a lot more to do with the tradition of Western philosophy than it has to do with Jewish or Christian religion. Because although the Bible does describe God consistently in ultimate terms, Boiling God's ultimate character down to these three specific specific attributes is something that philosophers and theologians have largely done apart from actual scripture. We can have a long talk with a pub theology with Caleb about this one day if we want to, but for brevity's sake this morning, I'll just say like blame Plato. That seems like a good place to start. But what matters for us today is that the Bible, although it endorses that God is omni-everything. What's notable is that the Bible we actually have doesn't choose to present God in those terms very often. Here's, Here's a detour that I think can illuminate where we're going this morning. In Psalm 139, the psalmist is sulking and the psalmist is ashamed and he writes this. He writes, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you're there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there, your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like day for darkness is as light to you. Now we can look at that psalm, and people do look at that psalm, and see in it a proof text for God's omnipresence. Isn't that what this psalm is about? See, the psalmist can't get away from God's spirit because God is everywhere. He's in the air. He's everywhere. And that's fair. That is true. But I have to ask you, is that what it's about? Is that what the psalm's about? Is it really 
a psalm about how God is everywhere, like in, in the atoms of space? No. What that psalm is about is about God's persistent nearness to the poet. Not that he's everywhere, that he's here with the poet who's doing his best to run away from him. The point isn't that God's in the air all around you. The point is that no matter where you run, God's hand will guide you. His right hand will hold you fast. The point that I'm getting to is that the Bible that we actually have is much more interested in teaching us about God's passion than it is answering questions about the infinitude of his presence. So I'm going to give us another omni today that I think helps. My argument today is that God is omnipersonal. He's omnipersonal. And that, in fact, his omnipersonal qualities are a big part of what makes him God to us. When we look at the parables of the lost sheep and the lost coin, we can delight in the simple pleasure of being saved. Or we can raise a skeptical eyebrow, as the teenagers might, at this paradox of a God who could ever claim to have lost us. Or I think we can go through a third door and discover somebody, discover somebody who is omni-everything enough to want to seek out every sheep and every coin, every sheep and every coin all at once. We can find a God here whose nature desires a level of intimacy with his creation that goes beyond mere authority or control. My argument today is that this is our actual God. He is the God who steps down from mere power over us who steps down from mere power over us in order to chase after our hearts that we might know him and feel known by him. There's this third parable right next in that list in Luke 15 that expands on all of this, and it's perhaps the best known of the three, but we should still read it together. So we've got a long chunk here, but I'm gonna read. Jesus continues after talking about the sheep and the coin. There was a man who had two sons, the younger one said to his father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. And not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. 
Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate for the son of mine was dead and now he is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field, and when he came near to the house, he heard music and dancing, so he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. And the older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him, but he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. All right. If you've been around churches a long time, you've heard a million sermons about the prodigal son. You maybe have read old books on it. I'm not going to tell you anything new. But I do think there are three questions that present themselves here that relate to this other conversation that we're having. And the first of them is this. Let's go back to where we started. How does something get lost? What does this parable teach us about how things get lost? I think it's notable that in this story, the only way for the son to actually become lost is for the father to allow the son to pretend something is true that is not true. The son leaves here. He gets lost when he collects his father's inheritance. But his father is not dead. This whole thing, the whole setup, the whole lostness is a ruse. And in fact, what it reveals is the father's willingness to allow the son to choose rebellion. His willingness to permit his son to continue to believe a thing and to act along with a thing that is not true. If that is the desire of his son's heart. Now, I think we can and we should be challenged by this, right? God certainly has control over us. And God certainly has control over all things. But what the Bible shows us and what we all experience is that a God who has perfect control over us nonetheless chooses to allow us to act as if things that are true are not true, if that is the desire of our heart. Why does an omni-everything God do that? I think he does it because, again, his passion is not omni-all the other things. His passion is omnipersonal. He wants the Son to feel and value the gift of his place in his father's house. He wants the son to value and understand his inheritance, his position as the father's son. That he wishes to seize, that the son wishes to seize his inheritance early and use it for his own ends is evidence in the story that the son to this point does not either love or wholly feel the love of his father. And this, we know from the story, is the thing the father is actually desiring here. And so he permits his son to make choices which enable him to discover this thing. Those choices entail becoming lost, right? But they entail becoming lost not because the father cannot see him, 
but because he is seeing the father wrongly. The lostness is the son's choice. But here's the thing, right? This story also shows us that a father set on his son's heart cannot by knowledge, by presence, or by power control his son's affection. Those omnis don't get, don't make that happen. Room then must be created for that kind of a change to take place. Which gets us closer, I think, to the second of the questions, which is what is the posture of the father in the story? What can we learn from how the father characterizes himself? What can it teach us? And the answer here is that the father's posture is radical humiliation in pursuit of the son's heart. Self-abasement. He allows this inheritance to go forward even under this charade that he's dead. Later, he watches for this rebellious son's return. And then when that return comes, he throws cultural propriety into the gutter, right? He gathers his skirt in his hands and he runs out to the rebellious son. He does this before he knows why the son is home, right? He does this, like maybe the son's just back to ask for more money. Right? Maybe the son's just here to flaunt his independence. He does this before the son apologizes, which when the son tries to apologize, we, we have that nice moment where we get the script, like the rehearsal script of the full apology so that we understand the father cuts the apology off before it's even finished. He does all of this at great cost to himself as he summons the servants to get the ring and the robe and the fatted calf. So why does this father choose a posture, choose a posture of radical humiliation? I would argue that in the story, the father's posture ends up being kind of the antithesis of that philosophical vision of God that we started with. Because instead of showing off his omnipresence, which he might have, he runs to the place where the son is. Not a thing an omnipresent God needs to do. Instead of reveling in his omniscience, the father seeks the son's heart and allows him to speak. Instead of glorying in his own omnipotence, he uses those same arms that are so powerful to hug his son tenderly and to welcome his son home. I don't think in the story that we're meant to conclude that God isn't those three things, that he isn't everywhere, that he isn't powerful, that he doesn't know. That's not the point. What we're meant to discover, though, is that those things are secondary to his overwhelming love for us and his deep desire, his profound desire for us to feel and share in that love with him. He has and he will lay everything down, all of that power in order to foster healing in our hearts and right understanding of our relationship to him. That's what he wants. And so what gets in the way of that? Lastly, what gets in the way of the feast at the end? Well, the older brother is the means by which Jesus answers the question, right? The brother's bitterness is an obvious answer, but where does that bitterness come from? When the older brother complains about the father's generosity, I think the thing we can see is that that reveals that he too, even in his presence in the home, he too misunderstands the father's omni qualities. He, 
is fearful. His whole response demonstrates that he is fearful that there is some limit to the father's wealth. Why else be stingy, right, about the feast? And by complaining about what he perceives to be the father's lack of attention towards him, he also reveals that he's fearful there are limits to his father's love. But the whole point here is that an omnipersonal God has no such limits. He's infinitely available, infinitely loving towards every person all the time. What, what does the father say in the story to the son? It's the part of the story that I've always, as I've read this a million times in my life, that I've always glanced right past. But he says this, you're always with me. And everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because his brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. I was talking with a friend about this story this week and it struck us in the conversation. Isn't the father saying here that the older brother could have a fattened calf anytime he wants? What's the holdup? Feast every day. The only reason the older brother's living so stingily is because he's convinced himself that he has to live that stingily in order to earn the father's attention towards him. This means that he too, even from his position in the house, is choosing to see his father wrongly, to see limits in his father's wealth and attention that aren't there. But the truth is, right, that an omnipersonal God is with every son, every sheep, every coin, all the time. Jesus tells us that he leaves the 99 for the one because Jesus wants us to understand that God's particular passion for everyone is for everyone. But that passion also rests on the 99. The temptation the 99 have to deal with is they have to withstand the envy and the bitterness and this shift in their imagination to a much smaller God that wells up in their hearts when they lose sight that this God's attention is always being freely given to them too. I told you all to be skeptical this morning, put on your teenage hats, right? Because I believe that to see the God these parables are showing to us, we have to look past the God that we're expecting to see in them. We are always, when we read the Bible, on the lookout for this God of power and might and authority. But Jesus' heart is consistently set on revealing the God that people are not prepared to see. The God who lays down power in order to pursue his people's hearts one by one, person by person, all so that our hearts can turn back towards him. Which means, of course, that the people that Jesus is talking to, like they're not prepared to see him and not prepared to see the Jesus that's standing in front of them. The Jesus talking to the Pharisees, that Jesus is that God running down the road to embrace wandering children. That's what his incarnation means. Discovering him means opening ourselves up to a God whose power, as much as it is, is nothing compared to his love for his people. Indeed, whose power serves that love. 
and rejoices when each and every heart turns back to him from wherever it's chosen to wander. So this morning, the challenge is, is simple, but also not, right? See past the God you fear to the God who is looking for you. See past the God who is abstract to the God who is infinitely personal to you. Wherever you have wandered from that God, turn now and be found. God never lost you. You've never, there is no space between you and him. There's only your posture turned away from him. And wherever you are, all it takes is to turn your posture around and be found.